Um, all right. So uh, you remember the last time we were good grief. Last time we met was, I think like March 1st, maybe, or somewhere around there. So uh, it has been a long time. Uh, and I want to just kind of basically go over what's happened uh, in, in, um, in the book uh, up to our study so far. And let me just brief everybody on, on the, the way we're kind of approaching the text as we're walking through the Old Testament. Uh, we started this all the way back in, in Genesis, and we've been basically trying to not just go through the Bible, that's obviously part of it, but then also talk about the background, uh, historical background, things that are, are not in necessarily in the scripture, but um, that, that are helpful to know as you read the Bible, that this is going on in the background and you probably need to know that. So we want to uncover some of those things as well. Um, want to demystify a lot of the, uh, the, the um, things that are mentioned in scripture, the geography that's mentioned in scripture, um, things that you, if you lived in the land at the time, would pick up on instantly, things that are culturally really relevant that you probably need to know. And so uh, basically our hope is to take the Old Testament and demystify it and show what how this, how this story in the Old Testament is being unfolded slowly over time and eventually comes to fruition in the New Testament where we see uh, Christ coming in and uh, and doing what he does and establishing God's kingdom, and so um, we are. We've been kind of slowly making our way through that, and uh, most recently we just came to a close uh, in the book of First Samuel. And as you well know, probably if you've read through First Samuel, uh, God is it has brought the children of Israel into the promised land through some extraordinary circumstances. They have uh, disobeyed largely in that they didn't drive the people out adequately uh, like they were told. And they are living amongst people that are pagans, that are just awful uh, worshipers of Baal and various other gods. And they, some of these pagan cultures are dragging most of the people away. And because they have uh, not really obeyed God, they really, Samuel was given to them as a, as a prophet, as, um, as a, a really a, effectively a priest, and he was a, at least a judge, and he acted a lot uh, very similar to a king. People revered him and respected him. And as he was going to die, uh, he was going to hand off the throne, so to speak, to his sons who were not nearly as upright as he was. And the people used that as an excuse to uh, petition Samuel, we don't want your sons, we want a king give us a king. And so they asked for a king and they really usurped uh, God's control over them and rejected God in the process. And so Samuel and the Lord uh, gave them what they requested essentially as judgment for them. And so the people have been living under the king Saul for some time. And we saw that through the book of first Samuel, it really details how um, Saul came to reject the Lord's word uh, and, and just disregarded completely everything that God had commanded him. Uh, everything from, and it, was, it seemed to be some very simple things that he neglected 
One was that he simply did not wait on Samuel to arrive at a place before offering a sacrifice and decided to do it himself. And another thing that he rejected was uh, he was told to, to kill the Amalekites completely and totally, and he did the exact opposite. He only killed what was refuse, what was the awful things, and kept all the good things for himself. And so um, with all that being the case, um, it, it's, it's, um, it, it, God basically took the throne away from him and said, I'm ripping the kingdom away from you, and I'm giving it to someone else. And we see Samuel go and anoint David as king. And um, we see David get brought into the house of Samuel. But as soon as the spirit of God rushes on David, it also leaves Saul. And, a, and an evil tormenting spirit uh, is sent by God to, uh, to Saul. And he uh, goes crazy and has fits of craziness. Uh, and he, uh, he just uh, continues to go to have these tremendous mood swings. And he's brought David into his court, who is the heir apparent, essentially, though it doesn't seem many people know that at the time. And, um, but uh, as David continues to play the harp for him and put him to sleep and, and put him at ease, um, Saul gets really angry with him from time to time and begins to chase him out. And then he gets paranoid and begins to chase him practically all over the country, even though David knows uh, I cannot uh, raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And so we see this several times toward the end of the book of 1 Samuel, where David has zero desire to kill Saul, even though he has plenty of opportunity to do so. He doesn't take it. And he punishes anybody that does take it. And so, or, or, that, or, or that really wants to, he reprimands them. And so he, um, he leads a, a really moral and upright uh, existence as kind of on the run from Saul's wrath. And so the last thing that we left off with was the close of the book of 1 Samuel, where David has driven out his enemies that he's fighting. And we flip over to the other scene where Saul is on the battlefield and the Philistines kill Saul and his sons there on the battlefield, leaving basically leaving Saul with basically one living heir, Ishbosheth, who we're going to talk about today uh, and next week as well. But um, Saul is left with one living heir. But they take the Philistines take um, Saul and his sons. They basically run them through with a spear and pin them to the wall there in Bet Shean, and they sit on the wall for a day until. Um, until some Jews come and take him down and actually bury them properly uh, and give them a proper burial. But um, basically the book of 1 Samuel ends with the death of King Saul and the book of 2 Samuel, which is where we're going to be this more, uh, this evening. Um, I got my days and my nights confused here in quarantine, but, uh, but <laughs> the book of 2 Samuel is going to, is basically opening now with, David, who is now taking over the throne that we've been waiting some 10 years to actually see him, him do. It's actually only been a few chapters, but uh, some, some 10 years that, that he's now been able to finally take, take on the throne. And so, um, so David is, is on the throne and he immediately begins to make some um, uh, preparations to move. He is currently living in Philistine country. And once he hears of the death of Saul, 
he hears it by the mouth of an Amalekite. And you'll see this on the review portion at the very top of your worksheet. If you print those out, if you got those, um, the very top portion is just a review of what we talked about last time. Um, this Amalekite comes to David and basically tells him a lie. And he tells him, look, we know you're the heir apparent, but Samuel has died. And uh, um, I mean, Saul has died and I killed him. I finished him off. Now he thinks that David is going to be really happy about that and that he's going to celebrate and he's going to reward this Amalekite. But he doesn't know what David has been through over the last, I don't know, 10 or so chapters where he's realized he cannot raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And so David looks at the Amalekite, who's actually lying, by the way, about how Saul died. He's just hoping to get some sort of reward. And David looks at him and um, basically has him put to death. Uh, and probably knows it's a lie, but has him put to death anyway. And so uh, David is in Ziklag, which is Philistine country, and he decides with uh, Saul being dead, he's going to move back into Jewish country um, so that he can take the throne properly. And so he moves from Ziklag and takes up his, uh, his th throne, if you will, or establishes his, uh, his place of residence in Hebron, which we're going to see on a map in just a minute. But uh, Hebron is toward the south end. It's south of even Jerusalem. So it, it's still in, in Judah, in Judahite territory. But, um, but he moves from Ziklag, which is even further south, all the way north up to Hebron, uh, and he really buys off the people in Judah. He sends them a lot of his spoils that he's gathered from victories over the last few years. He, he gives them some, some money, basically, uh, to find favor with them and then moves into Hebron. The problem that exists in the text that we're in tonight is David is out of Philistine country. He's in Hebron. Um, we have, uh, you know, he, which, is, which is Jewish country. Saul has just died. But in 2 Samuel chapter 2, which is where we're going to predominantly be tonight, um, Saul's chief of staff or his head of his military operations, a guy named, by the name of Abner, who's also Saul's cousin, by the way, uh, Abner has uh, actually taken a chance now with Saul being dead to take his only living heir, Ishbosheth, and make him king. And so... Uh, he immediately takes uh, Ishbosheth, makes him king, and so now we have two kings essentially over the throne. Now, the question I think we should be uh, asking ourselves, and we're going to see play out over the next couple of weeks, is what happens when you uh, know what the Lord wants uh, you to do or, or, or wants to take place? and you choose not to do it, what are the, the complications that then result from blatant disregard for God's word and disobedience? This is a theme running throughout the entire Old Testament. What happens when you disobey the Lord? The end is never good. It's never good. And we see it play out throughout the entire Old Testament. Well, here we're going to see we know that God has appointed David as the heir to the throne. We know that. And most of the characters in the story know that. But why is it that David is not on the throne um, of at least the entire country? Well, we're going to talk about some reasons why that's the case 
uh, tonight. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you can certainly open to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 2. You will find also in your packet, if you did print that out, you'll have uh, the all, pretty much all the passages, all the verses that I'm going to read from tonight. You're going you're gonna to see those in your packet there as we go through this. Um, the first thing that we've got to do, though, as we, as we think about um, Israel, uh, I remember Shannon, I think, asked this question or asked a question very similar to um, trying to figure out where Saul's throne was, where his castle was. You know, we're talking about a kingdom. He's a king after all. Where does he sit on the throne? I think I had said Shechem because I could not come up with the name. It's Gibeah, by the way, Shannon. I, I said Shechem last time. It is Gibeah. Uh, that was my mistake. But anyway, uh, there's this question, there's this picture in our minds as the children of Israel have come into the promised land that once they sort of get nestled into the territory and get settled in and have put a king over them, then there's this uh, castle and there's a military and there's, you know, things that a kingdom naturally has, all of these kinds of things. Well, that's absolutely not the case when David takes the throne in Second uh, uh, Samuel. Uh, in fact, it's not until David and um, and uh, Solomon. I'm trying to figure out how to. There we go. How to change slides here? Um, it's not until David and Solomon actually take the throne that this golden age of Israel's history, where we start to see a a proper kingdom of a proper castle or a proper house, a proper military, proper unity, all of those things actually begin to take place. Uh, it's not until David is well established into the throne that that golden age is actually set up. Up to this point, and even through Saul's um, kingship, Israel is, you could hardly call them a kingdom. It's hard to even call them a state because there isn't a um, there isn't like this political unity. Uh, we have we we obviously live in the United States. We have a um, a, uh, a, a, a basically a conglomerate of fifty states, some territories joined in there, but um, and we we pretty much know how things are organized. Uh, we pretty much know how the states function in relation to the national government and the, you know, the federal system that we're under. There's a sense of unity. We see the American flag. It flies above all other state flags except Texas. <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> uh, the U.S. flag, we, we all know what that is. It's got the 50 stars on it, you know, the 13 stripes. It's, it's, um, we're all unified under that flag. We all say the Pledge of Allegiance. We have the same national anthem. There's this sense of nationality that we have that really unites us all together as Americans, let's say. But Israel is a far cry from that. They don't have anything close to that. In fact, you're gonna, you've already seen some of that along the way. You may just not have picked up on it yet. Um, in fact, the whole burden of the book of Judges was the lament that you remember that refrain as it gets to the end of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel in that day, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so you, you have this, even as early as the book of Judges. Now, remember where Judges falls in the line of the chronology, if you will. Joshua, 
They move into the promised land. They begin driving out some people. Judges, the next book, where we find out in the first couple of chapters, did they do it? Did they actually accomplish what they were trying to accomplish and driving them out? No. In fact, chapters one, two on, we see, well, they didn't drive out this group. And so they just lived with them. And then they didn't drive out that group. They thought they would make better slaves. And so they didn't drive them out either. And so uh, the whole burden of the book of Judges is telling you there's no king in Israel. There's no sense of unity amongst the people. There's no sense of nationality whatsoever. And so uh, everyone's doing just what is right in their own eyes. There's no, there's no sense of actual purpose. So the book of Judges is cluing you into that. And then we also see in Joshua, as he uh, is leading the people into the land of Canaan, just before the book of Judges, he's not really a king. In fact, he makes a terrible politician because he's not a politician. He's not a, a, a king at all. In fact, he is uh, at best a covenant uh, mediator in that he relates but uh, he relates God to the people and the people to God. Um, he sort of plays that Moses type figure who um, conveys to the people what God is desiring and then leads them to do it and then uh, conveys to the people or to, to God what the people are desiring and so on and so forth. And um, and so but he's a, he makes a terrible politician and he's not that wasn't his function. And so the the you notice that the 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 people under Joshua are still not altogether, um, you know, they're not altogether unified under Joshua at all. Um, and so the period from the period of the judges all the way into the, the reign of Saul, which is a, a period of years from about um, t- uh, 1366 to 1051 BC for your timeline there, 1366 to 1051 BC, where Saul finally takes the throne in about 1051. Um, Saul will, uh, gets off the throne. He dies in 1011, and David takes the throne in 1011. So uh, 1366 to 1051, and all the way through Saul's uh, kingship, it basically gives rise to these occupational uh, territories where they are, uh, the people are living in the land. They are more or less co-mingling with a lot of idolaters and a lot of pagan worshipers. Um, the people are uh, just continuing to, to pick up the religions of the people that are there. And all that does to, all, all that serves to do is just further disintegrate any solidarity that ever did remain of the people because the only thing remember this the only thing that united the people of Israel up until this point was that they supposedly still called on the same the same name of their god they still were supposed to at least worship Yahweh together but now if they're living with pagans and they're living next to pagans and the pagans are influencing them with their their god then well there's none of that even uh that unites them and so they they start to even break down along religious lines too they're they're uh not going to stay together at all um they did israel did preserve the office of elder it survived um there was always uh basically an an elder or a group of elders over 
the nation of Israel. But what you will find in the time between the judges and through Saul, they were effectively useless. They didn't really do anything. They didn't really say much. They didn't really have any kind of decisive leadership over the people in any way. And so they were very poor leaders without, I guess you would say, a head elder or a a king over the people. There was not a a proper uh, ruling that they were supposed to be uh, enacting. And so basically what that means then is that the age was marked, the age of of, uh, all the way up to Saul and through through the judges and all the way up to Saul is marked by complete anarchy. and, And it's all due to covenant infidelity. Um, I'm going to read from uh, a passage in Judges, Judges chapter 2, verses 11 to 23. It's in your verse packet. You can follow along with me there uh, if you have it, uh, or in your Bible, that's fine too. Judges chapter 2, verses 11 to 23. Um, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to the plund- to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the, into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they uh, could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other, uh, other gods and bowed down after them. They soon turned aside from their way, from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did uh, did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, uh, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not stop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive it drive out before them uh, any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord or as their fathers did or not. So the Lord uh, left those nations, not driving them out uh, quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So that passage right there, you can, if you saw that in your Bible, you can just mark that down as the basic summary of the book of Judges. That, that right there, that little section, is a great synopsis of the entire book of Judges. This is currently the problem with Israel. They disintegrated into anarchy. They didn't listen to the Lord. And you see what happened. The Lord gave them over to the depravity of their own mind, essentially, and left them in judgment uh, with the nations that were around them. And so, you know, that, that, that 
continued through the time of Saul. That didn't stop just because Saul was king. But there's also um, another factor that was a key role that played a really key role in their disunity. And that was geography. Uh, you remember, if you, if you have in your mind just a picture of the Holy Land, you, you have uh, over on, if you just kind of picture an, an aerial view, a map of the Holy Land, on the left-hand side, you would see the, uh, I guess I should do it like this, maybe on the left-hand side, you would see the Mediterranean Sea. On the right-hand side, you would see up at the top, the Sea of Galilee. You would see the, the, uh, the, the Jordan River going all the way down to the Dead Sea. And you remember that on the other side of the Jordan, in the wilderness, there were three tribes that really wanted to stay over there and maintain their presence and their land uh, on the other side of the river. And Joshua was not really happy about that. In fact, he was pretty trepidatious about letting them stay over there. You can see our next passage in Joshua 22, 13 to 20, when these tribes ask him for that. He says, then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben, uh, people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him, the 10 chiefs, one of each of the tribe tribal families of Israel, each one of them the head of the family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against God, uh, the God of Israel, in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day uh, in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin of Peor? from which, uh, which even yet you have not cleansed yourself and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you must turn away this day from following the Lord. Now you remember what happened, the, 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 the tribes of, of um, the half tribe of Manasseh, the uh, tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad, they all wanted to settle over there and Joshua was not having much of it. Moses wasn't either, but the Lord said, it's okay. Let them settle over there, but they have to promise if they're going to settle over there first, they have to go into the land and help you conquer the land. Once they do that, then they can go back to their, their, uh, their, their place of dwelling on the other side of the river. There's a lot of trepidation by the leaders, both Moses and Joshua, about letting an entire group of people, part of their brothers who worship the same God they do, go to the other side of the Jordan and just live there because they know the separation of the geography is going to cause some disunity. You can't just cross a river. Uh, that's not, especially in those days, that's not super easy. It's, it's honestly not really easy in our day. I mean, you know, it's hard enough to build a bridge, but uh, back then, oh man, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. And so um, there's, there's a lot of, not a lot of interest in the leaders of letting people live that far out from the land. And yet the Lord permits them to be able to do it so long as they continue to accomplish their goal. Well, they go back out there toward their land after it's all over. They're heading back out there and they build an altar to the Lord. And the reason they build the altar, you remember, is because they're going to cross the Jordan and they want to get back in the land and they don't want some grandkid one day to, uh, to, you know, to raise up and say, who are you to cross over the Jordan and come into our land and try to kill 
these, the, these three tribes as they come back in. And so they built an altar to kind of be able to say in the future, uh, our ancestors built that altar, so you need to let us in. And so there's immediate distrust, though, because they're like, what is this altar that you built? Are you already worshiping foreign gods? Um, and you see in Judges 12, 1 to 6, the next passage there, I won't read it all, but um, if you look down at verse 6, there, there's two, two uh, sections of tribes that are fighting over each other, or fighting with each other. One is Ephraim, that's a tribe, and then the other is Gilead, which is a, a, a portion of the tribe of Manasseh. Uh, they're fighting each other, and they're gonna, the, the tribe of Manasseh, or the Gileadites, are going to kill the Ephraimites. So they're killing their own brothers. And the reason they're killing their own brothers is because they're separated by a long distance. And so they decide to put them to put them to death. But you see in verse six, they have a test for figuring out if this person is from Manasseh or if he's from uh, Ephraim. And the test is they ask them to say the word Shibboleth because a person from the tribe of Ephraim can't say Shibboleth. They can only say Sibboleth because they've lost the SH sound in their vernacular. So just to give you an idea of how much the geography has already played into their disunity is that they have different dialects that have already popped up by this time. And so they put them to the test, say Shibboleth, and they say Sibboleth. And so then they drag them off and they kill them, uh, which probably isn't funny, but uh, it kind of strikes me. It's a little bit humorous. <laughs> so... Um, so anyway, the geography is leading to this, this further disunity in amongst the people. Now, um, this is the kingdom that David inherits. So if you have in your mind this, he walks into the, the, the palace, sits on the throne with his, you know, pet lions and, you know, all of this kind of stuff, wipe that out of your mind. This is a ragtag bunch of individuals that are not at all unified in any real sort of way. And we even see this as Saul comes onto the, into the throne, we see a, a specific, the, the disunity begins to focus in on the difference between the tribe of Judah and uh, the Northern tribes, all the tribes in the North. Judah is one of the southernmost tribes in the land and um and the northern tribes kind of tend to have some sort of commonality with one another and for whatever reason judah uh kind of marched to the beat of their own drum so to speak and so in saul's day you see this widening gap between judah and all the rest of the northern tribes and as an example of this we've seen this a couple of times in the text saul goes to uh, uh, take up arms against uh, and deliver the town of Jabesh-Gilead, where his ancestors are from, from the threat of the Ammonites, from Ammon. And he calls 300,000 men from Israel. Now, in that instance, when we say Israel, we mean the northern tribes, not the whole nation, just the northern tribes. So he calls and he gets, he gets 300,000 men from the northern tribes and he gets 30,000 from Judah, which is, uh, which is, it's a bigger tribe. And they should probably have a good bit more than that. But the author is clear to point out there is a difference between the two groups. 
Um, and so, so there, you know, there's some difference. And then we have a similar thing that happens again when he goes against the Amalekites. We see there's a difference in the disparity in the size of the military uh, that is con- uh, contributing to the militaristic uh, battles. And then the, the author also calls us, uh, calls attention when David comes onto the scene and he kills Goliath. Remember, he goes, he goes on and he kills Goliath. And the, the author of 1 Samuel 17, 52 tells us that the men of Israel and Judah all pursued the Philistines and struck them down. So he's, he's showing you in the text that, he's, that, he's, that there were times when David came onto the scene that these two groups actually functioned together as one. Otherwise, they didn't really like each other and they kind of went their own ways. Uh, then another time, uh, David comes, uh, is, is attached to Saul's court. And remember, this is part of what drives Saul mad. But it, he, he tells them that uh, all Israel and Judah loved him, loved David. They, they, they loved David, and so they all celebrated it. So it seems like there's some hints in 1 Samuel that when David comes onto the scene, there is this disunity between the two groups, between Judah in the south and all the rest of the northern tribes called Israel in the north. And, but yet when David comes onto the scene, everybody kind of likes him. He sort of uh, he gets along with everybody, it seems. And so they all kind of loved him, but it's, but it, it's really clear, or it seems to be even clearer in the text that there is not only disunity amongst all of his, all of the nation of Israel, just all of the people that, that would call themselves Israelites, but specifically a sharp division between the Northern tribes and the tribe of Judah in the South. And so there's uh, these two entities. Where are we at? What do I have? Yeah. Yeah. Here it is. Last blank. Um, so it's clear that Israel uh, and Judah were perceived as two entities that were following these separate paths. So you have David walking into that scene. Good luck, right? I mean, this is not a, a uh, I mean, you could say probably the presidents over the last 20 years have really more or less walked into that kind of climate in our own country you know, where there's like this sharp division between groups in our country. And, um, and I mean, who wants that? Who in their right mind would say, yeah, I think being a president would be awesome right now. Are you kidding me? It's got to be the worst job in the world, uh, especially at this moment. Um, so you can imagine then David takes the throne. The entire nation is divided. They've never been unified. They've never driven out all the nations that they were supposed to. They've never done any of that. So what are the odds that David is going to be able to just waltz into a place and command their love and admiration and respect? Well, not much. Well, then as soon as he takes the throne, what do we have? But Abner, the king's uh, commander of his army and and close relative, appoints a Saul's remaining heir, Ishbosheth, to the throne and king over the northern tribes, over the tribe of Israel. Fine, David, you can have Judah if you want it. You can even have Hebron, but you can't have the whole group of us all together. Uh, we have our own king and we don't serve you. Now, you'll remember that David was the one when uh, Abner 
who was watch, who was supposed to watch after Saul. Saul led this campaign to come and kill David. And Abner is supposed to be watching and keeping watch over, over Saul as he slept. And David and his men snuck into the camp in the middle of the night and stole Saul's canteen, his water canteen and his uh, spear. And David runs to the other valley and wakes him up and he yells across the valley, Abner should be killed <laughs> because, he's, because he's let me come in and, and, and take uh, what belongs to Saul. Could have killed Saul in the middle of the night and Abner, Abner should be killed. And uh, it doesn't seem that Abner has forgotten that. Uh, perhaps he's holding a little bit, uh, he's holding some hostility uh, over David at this moment. So he appoints um, the heir Ishbosheth to the, the throne. And then Abner does something in our text where he actually moves uh, uh, Ishbosheth and some of his, or he moves some of his men closer to, uh, to uh, Judah to essentially declare war is effectively what's happening. So Abner takes this really aggressive position uh, in this sort of uh, essentially creating a skirmish between the northern tribes that follow um, Ishbosheth and the southern tribe of Judah. Look at Judges. Uh, I think I have Judges there. That's not what I want. I want Second uh, Samuel uh, 2, 12 to 17 in your verse packet on the second page, about halfway down. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out to meet them at the pool of Gibeon. They sat down on the one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by, uh, by number, 12 from Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, 12 from the, of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in the opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. The, and the battle was fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Okay, so you've got this uh, this battle between the the. Sorry, Tim McKinley is walking by my my window right now. Sorry, I had to had to wave at him. <laughs> um, you have this um, this battle between the Soshas and the Greasers. They come to the pool of of Gibeon and they sit down on either side of the pool and they're drawing up sides. Now, how do we know that Abner is taking the aggressive position? Well, I'm going to show you a map here of the promised land. And so you'll get a better idea down here at the South. I don't have my bright green laser pointer tonight. So you have to bear with me down here toward the South. This big body of water is the Dead Sea. The Jordan River is what's going up North of it. And you'll see this big orange line right here going all the way up to Mahanaim. We don't know exactly where Mahanaim is, but we do know it's across the river and it's probably right about there. And so you see the orange line is Abner's route all the way down. And the star down here is uh, Gibeah and then the pool of Gibeon, which is uh, in between Gibeah and Gibeon. So Abner marches his way all the way down there. And so down here at the very bottom of the map is Hebron. So you'll see down at the bottom of the map is Hebron, and which is where David and his capital 
is basically at where his his place of residence is. And so once uh, once Joab, who's the chief officer of the of the armies of David, once he hears that uh, Abner is marching into the land, what do you think he's going to do? Well, he's going to move up away from Hebron to make sure he gives him a buffer room between um, between there and and Hebron. And so he moves up into the pool of Gibeon and they sit down on either side and he take, they take with him some men and they're like, hey, why don't we let the best warriors compete uh, between us? You remember this? This is what happens with uh, David and Goliath. This is why Goliath comes out to the field of battle because it's, a, it's an ancient battling technique. We don't have to fight each other and waste all of our men. Why don't we just let our fiercest warriors go out into the battlefield? Whoever wins takes the other. And, uh, and so this is kind of the idea. They appoint 12 people, but you can see that Abner is the one that's taking the aggressive position. He's marching in, into battle, and he's coming that direction. And so um, basically what Abner's wanting to do is exercise the might of the north. He's wanting to apply some northern might on David's Judean uh, uh, capital or kingdom, if you will. And so he takes this aggressive position, and he has 12 men a uh, 12 on 12 battle. Now the, the text is a little bit strange here. I think when you probably first read it, um, it says, um, it, it says uh, at first that each one fell by, by their side. Let me get what the exact words are. Um, it says, and each caught his opponent in verse 16 by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Um, so we've got that. But then in 17, it says, and the battle was fierce that day. And it seems that Abner was beaten by the Israelites. Well, but it's, it, it sounds like what happens to make the best sense of the text is that they basically all stabbed each other and 24 people died. Uh, 12 on 12, they each killed each other and they all died uh, right there on the battlefield. And then in verse 17, uh, the summation of the whole thing. Imagine if you're the aggressor. And you march onto the battlefield with your people and you lose all 12 of your men. The defending position lost all 12 of their men too. But does that matter if you're the aggressor? No, you got, you got beat. But then also by the time the day's over, by the time this is all said and done, Abner is going to get whooped essentially is what's going to happen. And so I think 17 is both looking at, what really happened in this battle, but then also what's coming in the future. And so, um, so he's exercising this Northern might, but what, what it seems like we're supposed to understand from the text, because remember, we're looking at this through the eyes of the author, who's also always kind of giving you God's perspective on this battle. It seems that remember in, in, when Israel marches onto the battlefield, God drives them out. But not so here. Yahweh uh, is, is, is sending a pretty clear message that he is not taking sides in this battle. In fact, when Israel goes against Israel, nobody wins. When Israel fights against Israel, nobody wins. Uh, so it seems like God is uh, communicating that message. Did everybody get the last blank? On the previous slide, thumbs up. No, there's no's all around. Let me, how's that? Yahweh, 
taking sides. Yahweh and taking sides. Good. All good there. All right. Next slide. Israel goes against, goes to war with Israel. Um, so what David had hoped is he's going to take on the throne and he's going to be able to unite all the people under his kingship. One battle at a pool between 24 men and all of that went down in flames. His effort to keep Israel together and unify Israel seems to be, seems to just vanish completely right before uh, his very eyes. There's no, it seems no hope to keep Israel together. And so as this battle continues, obviously the 12 take on the 12. They all die, it seems, on the battlefield. But then you get this little character that I kind of I like, Asael. Uh, he goes after Abner. He's going to kill, he's going to put Abner to death because Abner seems to be the instigator in all of this. Abner's the one that appointed uh, Ishbosheth to the throne and made sure that he was on the throne. Abner was the one that instigated, it seems, the battle and is the one that even suggested they do a battle. Uh, so it seems that if you put to death Abner, you kind of cut the head off the snake. So Asael <clears throat> goes after Abner and really wants to put him to death. And it, and it, it tells us in the text that, that Asael is a fleet of foot. He's a fast, he's a fast brother. All right. He's a pretty fast dude. And he goes after Abner, who seems to be a pretty old man, but Abner's still pretty crafty. Look at second Samuel 18, 23. Second uh, uh, Samuel two verses eighteen to twenty three, and the three sons of Zariah uh, were there: Joab, Abishai, and Asael. Now Asael was swift of foot and as wild as a, as a wild gazelle, and Asael pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, "Is it you, Asael?" And he answered, "It is I." Abner said to him, "Turn aside to your right hand or to your left." And seize one of the young men and take take his spoil. And, but Asael would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again, Asael, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? Joab's a pretty bad dude, so he knows he's going to get killed. But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out his back. And he fell down there and died. And all who came to the place where Asael had fallen and died stood still. So um, he, he gave, uh, Abner gave him some opportunities. You need to turn back, young man, turn away from me. And uh, Asael would not. He was going to get, he was going to uh, get some revenge for David. And Abner takes the butt end of his spear. Uh, it seems like he does not want to do it. But the back end of the spear was also sharp in those days. So they could stick it in the ground. And so he takes the butt end of his spear and hits him in the stomach with it so hard that it comes out his back, which is, makes for a great action movie. Um, but <laughs> the point is, the, the author is making sure you remember this moment because uh, Abner had no choice. What Abner did was self-defense. That's going to come back next week uh, in chapter three. But just remember Abner had no choice. He had, to, he had to do this. He had to basically defend himself. Uh, he does not fall under the provision in the law that allows someone to get revenge for blood guiltiness. Um, and so uh, Abner kills Asael. 
uh, and in in um, and so then uh, Abner found himself. Did he? Did he uh, actually? Uh, uh, I lost my place now. Um, oh, instead of getting rid of the pursuit, um, Abner found himself pursued by Asel's two brothers. So what are the brothers wanting to do? The brothers are wanting to exercise this aspect that they think of the law and, uh, and kill Abner for having killed their brother. You're allowed to do that within the law. But probably what they don't know, or maybe they do know it and they ignore it, Joab and Abisha, or Abishai, um, they decide they want to kill Abner anyway. They want to go after him and, and pursue him. And so Abner thinks maybe it can put an end to this, but in killing uh, Asael, he actually I- invokes the wrath of, of his two brothers. And so he gathers his men uh, in the wilderness at Gibeon, and he has this strategic position uh, there with Joab. And you can see this in 2 Samuel 2, 24 to 28. Joab and Ab- Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of uh, Amma, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became as one, uh, one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? I mean, that's pretty clever. He's the one that started all this thing. Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell you your people to turn uh, from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. And so Joab blew the trumpet and all the men uh, stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. You'll find uh, in the NIV, the way that this verse is actually leads you to believe is that what uh, what Joab's response is not um, that, wow, if you hadn't said something, then we would have kept going and I would have eventually killed you. But that what he actually means here is, well, if you hadn't suggested the 12 on 12 battle, then we'd have sat there by the pool until the next morning, and we would have all gone home. And so it's confusing the way the Hebrew is written as to which we're supposed to understand. I think it makes more sense for Joab to say that to, uh, to Abner, that if you hadn't opened your big mouth and started all this, then we wouldn't be fighting to begin with. Uh, but either way you take it um, can make some sense. And so uh, the point is they, they sort of cease the battle or they come to a temporary truce right there. And next week we're going to see that it, it goes a little bit further. Um, but so Joab agrees to, to uh, call off his men. But what we find by the end of the text in chapter two is that Abner suffered the greater loss. And you actually see that in verse 31 of two uh, of chapter two of second Samuel, but the servants of David had struck down Benjamin 360 of Abner's men um, while David's servants lost 19 plus Asael. And so uh, the, the loss from on Abner's end was much, much greater. So we already see that even though this is not a good thing for Israel to fight against Israel, the Lord is still with David overall. And, but, but the, the thing that, that kind of caps this whole story off that we're going to see even we're in greater detail next week, but we already know the, the sin here or the, the asinine position that Abner takes is that Abner knows David is the rightful heir to the throne. Look in your verse packet at 2 Samuel 3, 9 to 10. 
This is Abner, Abner, uh, uh, Abner speaking. God do so to Abner, speaking in third person. And more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord had sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Dan's all the way up in the north down to, to Beersheba. Look in 17 to 18. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel saying, for some time this past, you, had, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has appointed David. So what is this? Abner is admitting that he knows that the Lord has appointed David over the throne. And yet, why does he appoint Ishbosheth over the over the throne of the northern kingdom? It's brazen sin that he's going after and try, and and really thinking uh, to think that that God's plan to have David over the people of Israel could possibly ever be thwarted. It's either, uh, well, it is brazen sin, but it, 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 it's either just plain ignorance or, uh, or, or something else. Maybe he's just that dense. But what we're going to see is that Abner actually ends up paying a, a, a high price uh, for his, his sin in this case. And so um, what, what is the result of disobedience to the Lord? This isn't different from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The only difference being that when we disobey the Lord as his children, he is not against us. He is for us. We see in Judges and in the Old Testament, you disobey him, he is against you. But under the blood of Christ, in disobedience to God, he is still for us. But it's not doesn't mean that he doesn't discipline us. He corrects us because he loves us but he does discipline us. But it, it, it goes to show you, the New Testament brings it out a number of times. To him who knows, if it, it knows it is sin, and, 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 or to him who knows what he should do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And so uh, the New Testament is even clear on this matter. And so it seems as though Abner is just blatantly ignorant and brazen in his attempt to sin against the Lord. And so what I'm going to do now, I'm going to take it off sharing uh, if I can Let's see. And um, get my mouse going. All right. And uh, I'm going to, I can unmute anybody that wants to, or you can unmute yourself if you have any questions that I can tackle here in the last couple of minutes. Go ahead, Shannon. Take your stuff off mute. There you go. To what end was Abner doing this? I mean, what was he to gain or, or lose for not? I mean, what, to what end was he doing this? That's a really good question. And I, the, the text doesn't ever really tell us what his motivations are, but we could speculate that there's some animosity between him and David, that he, is, he doesn't really like David because of what David's done uh, to him in the past. And uh, we see a couple of instances where Abner is uh, there when David is not. Remember, David uh, Abner is Saul's right hand man and his cousin, and mm-hmm. um, is is observing basically the whole thing between Saul and and David. And so, it's possible that he just has some animosity. Plus, David called him out right in front of his cousin and uh, leader, so to speak. But called him out. You should put him to death. And so. 
it seems like there's no love lost between the two. If, if that's the whole reason, I, I don't know that we know. We're not, we're not ever really told. But at least the text brings that out. And so it would seem like mm, that's probably got a lot to do with it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But sin also blinds us and makes us do crazy things sometimes. Yeah. Good question. Anything else? Man, everything was that clear or y'all are like, I'm ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, um, thanks for hanging in there with me and, and going through all of this and man, we'll, we'll hopefully make it back into the, into the, uh, church building one day. Uh, and we'll, won't have to unmute and mute and all that kind of stuff. Although it's kind of nice. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should get, hang the, keep this around. <laughs> Michael, can, can we um, drop our peanut butter and things like that off up at the uh, office? You can. Our we can, yeah, things. drop it off at the office. We can still make okay. runs and we do to get the mail. We do to pay bills. We do to do things like that. So we can still make some runs up to the office and uh, do kind of normal everyday business. And so if you drop uh, peanut butter there at the doorstep, we'll put it inside and take it whenever we can. If we have okay. to collect it for a while until we can actually go to the Christian ministry center, then we'll do that too. But Okay. Yes. Good question. Thank you. All right. Well, let me pray for us all. And then I guess we'll, uh, I'll, I'll see y'all next week. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for your word and what it, uh, what it means to us. And uh, I pray that you, through all of this, through our growing in knowledge of just the story of the Old Testament, to our understanding of what it communicates about you, that you would not only uh, give to us knowledge in our minds, but affection in our hearts, that all of this that we're doing and that we're growing to understand that we're demystifying the Old Testament, that all of that would serve to increase our affections for you and that it wouldn't just puff us up with knowledge. And so I pray that it would transform us, um, the encountering of your word, and that we would go out and that we would be bold witnesses, having the confidence um, to take the Old Testament and, and read it with people, to take the New Testament and read it with people. And not be afraid of what it says that we won't understand, but um, trust that you are the God that was of the Old Testament, that was of the New Testament, and that is of uh, over us today. You uh, always were, you always are, and you always will be, and that we can have great confidence in that. And so I pray that that would do that in our hearts and minds. Uh, be with each of us as we go. Keep us safe and healthy as we try to avoid this virus uh, I pray for each and every person uh, in this room and, and, and also not um, that you would give to us um, uh, confidence and hope and endurance through this uh, tough time. Uh, we pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen.